welcome to Cinemakers, Amy Hegerling. This is episode 51, Clueless from 1995. I'm Cara Gail I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And Cara, this is the second time you're talking about this movie. This is also the second time in the last month or so that you've recorded an episode live in person. That's Again, true. same disclaimer as on Whistle Thinking, not really live, but kind of live. Mm-hmm. This is the first episode, Mike, that we've recorded Cinemakers live in the same, oh, person, that's right. same room because Tobin lives all the way in Montana. Yeah, and Chris had doctor things, but here we are for the sixth episode, I believe, of Amy Hackerling's run. Yep. the other fantastic film that she made. I mean, she's made other good movies. Look who's talking, great. But Fast Times, and now there's Clueless. What some may call, what we may call before, before start recording, a perfect movie. I mean, what what an occasion for a, a live episode. Yeah, I mean, only the best movies get the live episode attention. That's not true. But no, this is definitely. We've been waiting a long time to talk about this one it's i think it's one of the reasons we're here it is the reason we're here there's always one movie per podcast that's the reason you know like with keanu was the matrix not cage cage is well no cage 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 was first he defies with keanu it was the matrix yeah zach efron it was we are your friends yeah but Charlize was mad max Max. interesting yeah so that that was true first episode Hmm. Very cool. It was all downhill from there. <laughs> but here we are for Cinemaker's Clueless. This is actually my favorite movie. This is the movie I've seen more than anything else in my lifetime. I watched it again last yeah, night. Yeah, I think we all rewatched it within the last 24 hours. I watched it this morning, and so. Same. It's so good. It's so good. I also want to point out right at the top here that it is. It has two Radiohead songs in there that they are used twice. So I know Fake Plastic Trees is there. What's the other one? My Iron Lung is used twice. Oh, interesting. As long as we're talking about music real quick, I will say my only ding against this entire movie, and it's only my ding. Before before we get into this ding, let me at least have a moment to talk about Radiohead. I thought that was. I thought that was. Yeah, I thought that was a Radiohead. Because you talk about them on every show, so I just figured, you know. I want to say that, like, this is the year that the Benz came out, and they weren't really big in America yet. Oh, Like, this is important. I see. In a sense, because we've talked a lot about how Amy Hackerling has really good music in all of her movies. Mm -hmm. Was Creep out yet by this point? Creep was Pablo Honey Creep was the first album. Okay, the three. But okay. Fake Plastic Trees and My Iron Lung are both the Benz. Unpopular and opinion. The Benz is my favorite Radiohead. Not only that unpopular, it's a very good album. Yeah. I think it's very telling of how sort of tapped into or dialed into the culture of music she is. Mm-hmm. To not only have stuff like, you know, like the muffs to kick it off with Kids in America, but also have Radiohead songs that are not super important. Like, they're not loud and in your face like Kids in America is, but they are in the background of important scenes. And obviously, I love them because that's my favorite band of all time. All right, Mike. Okay, so I wish I could agree with you 100% on the music of this movie, but I mean, I only have one grudge against it, and that is the inclusion of the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. It's not a big thing anymore, but at the time I saw this as a teenage punk who was very much into the Boss Tones. I just saw it as the moment they completely and utterly sold out. But that was then, this is now, and I'm totally fine with it as it is. It just felt very awkward for me for the Boss Tones to be in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, of all the live bands you're going to get, just didn't seem to fit. But it is what it is, and they've gone on to be bigger than that now. Like, Dickie Barrett is the announcer for Jimmy Kimmel and stuff, and so... Watching it this time, I kind of laughed at myself for hating it so much back then, you know? Like, I'm watching it going like, oh yeah, the Boss Tones, I can't believe they're in this. Back in the day, I was pretty pissed about it, 
but it didn't keep me from enjoying the rest of the movie. Like, it was just the moment, and then it was over. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It didn't ruin the movie. Because they play two songs, like, in their entirety in this mm-hmm. And one of the songs was, like, a brand new hit for them, and another song was a very, sort of, not a very old, but, like, an older hit. Well, where did you go? Was it the new one? No, that was the older one. Okay. So that's the one that we knew as kids, and it's like, what is it doing in this corporate monster film kind of thing? Little did you know how little of a corporate monster this was, really. Uh, yeah. It was kind I of mean, a corporate monster, though. Well, at the time, it just... You know, it felt very out of place. Yeah. But that's my only gripe ever with this movie. Like, I think it's great. It's adorable. You know, it does things that other movies, like, there's certain, there's a moment in here that I feel like other movies might find taboo, that this movie just finds natural and normal. And yeah, it's it's pretty cool. So I read a whole book about Clueless. In book pre- club. Book club in preparation for this. It's called As If, An Oral History of Clueless by Jen Chaney. It's available on Audible if you want to listen to it. I highly recommend recommend it. And I think there's actually a whole chapter about the Boston scene in the book. And I, I don't remember it exactly, but I think they like weren't the first choice. And uh. also they didn't realize like how long the shoot would go. So they just kept drinking Sounds and got like the Boston. really drunk. And they said they had like overall a pretty good time doing it, but it drove them crazy to watch the kids not know how to dance to their music. Yeah. Cher's doing the hot girl dance. That is not how yeah. you just can't. Yeah, the but not Boston even her. Like, like if you pay attention to the other kids in the scene they're like i don't know how to dance to ska yeah they're a ska band but they're also like a thrash metal ska band really? too yeah like their early stuff and some of their later stuff is very heavy metal stuff so it just didn't seem like their crowd but yeah skanking they so are they, not were they performing live while they were filming that scene i think they did a couple live run-throughs and then they were backing track yeah i saw them live once it feels kind of like the type of because i know that it, this is a little bit of movie magic that always depresses me but like when you see a scene with music music in it, they almost always add that music in after the fact. So I kind of saw it as like they were playing while they had the close-ups of the band, but when they were showing the kids, there wasn't actually music in there. They were just like, hey kids, dance to music, and then they were just dancing for, you know. Right, and then we're going to fill it in later. Right. I can understand that maybe as that, but also if the people on stage were saying that they couldn't dance to our music, then clearly they were dancing to their music at some point Mm -hmm. and doing it poorly. Doing it poorly. There's a whole chapter in the book about the music in the film. And you said that this isn't really a corporate monster, but it is. It was made by Paramount, who is owned by Viacom, which also owns MTV. And so there was a lot of crossovers and just like a lot of like kind of behind the scenes to get clearance for all the music in the movie, which is why it's like so jam-packed with yeah, it. needle drops left and right, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And the song Just a Girl by No Doubt came out like after they had already put in most of the music in the movie and they wanted to use it in that opening scene and they like couldn't get it in there but that was a regret of Heckerling's that she wasn't able to feature it more prominently however it is in the scene when she's in the car with Dion. I forgot, no doubt, was like that old too. Yeah, <laughs> older even. Yeah. But before we like really get into the movie and talking about Amy Hackerling, I just wanted to take whatever the opposite of a moment of silence is. A moment of noise. A moment of noise for Mona May, who is the costume designer, not only on Clueless, but on many of Hackerling's projects. They started together in a TV pilot that she had done previous to this. But anyway, so Mona May totally important designer and the clothes in this movie they're not just iconic they like changed fashion really yeah so she only had eight weeks to like research design acquire put all of these outfits together have everyone 
try them on, yada, yada, yada. Eight weeks. And she had like... There's a lot of clothes in this movie. There are so many clothes in this movie. It's crazy. But so what she did, because Heckerling didn't want the girls to look like runway models. She wanted them to look like mall rats. So costume designer Mona May had like gone and looked at a bunch of runway shows and like what was in at that time. Plus they pulled in like, you know, elements of grunge fashion and specifically with thigh high socks, which I am currently wearing to keep warm. (laughs) That had like come and gone very briefly as a fashion trend. And Heckerling basically reintroduced them as like a thing and made them become a trend. So people think that it was just like taking what the fashion was at that time and kind of like putting it through this kind of like hyper filter, but they really like pulled in vintage stuff and all sorts of stuff and like changed fashion. Everything was super, super grunge beforehand, like super grunge and like to some degree very hip hop and this changed fashion. Yeah, because like even not just guys, but girls were dressing grungier mm-hmm. and, and more baggy and almost trying to emulate what their boyfriends were wearing yeah. at the time. And like, I know at this point in grade school or middle school, I was full on like grunged out with like flannel shirts around my waist yeah. and jeans and everything. And watching it going like, this is the 90s. There's so much plaid in this movie. The girls are wearing plaid in this, but also the idea that this reset the trend to say like, girls can dress up again or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like you can incorporate the styles of the fashions, but you could still make, make it more, them very feminine. Yeah, really. make it more yeah. feminine and like make it your own mm-hmm. too. You don't have to just follow the trend exactly. Like you can alter it and everything. So that's really cool. It was like a trend-setting movie. Like yeah. That. There are 53 different kinds of tartan plaid used in this movie, (laughs) seven of which are worn by Cher and 12 by other major characters. I wore a tartan plaid kilt in Scotland this year. There you go. It's not, it's tartan slash plaid. So not all of them are tartans, but... Right. I also like that there is in this movie what feels like a sense of frustration with fashion that it was written in Mm. where Cher talks about where there's like the five dudes walking at her Mm -hmm. pants hanging low backwards caps on all of them looks like they just rolled out of bed and threw on some baggy pants and put on a backwards cap and that's we're supposed supposed to be attracted to that yes and I I feel like in a way it's either Amy Heckling or Mona May or some kind of combination where just like hey like we owe it to the girls of America today to like (laughs) try to get people's act together because (laughs) the whole movie like Donald Faison is just literally Literally holding, holding his, his pants, pants on. on. Yep, yep, I, yep. There's one shot I saw where his belt is just like unbuckled. Undone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's like I understand that that was what you're supposed to do, but at the same time, wear pants. Yeah, no, it's a, it's almost like a parody level yeah. of the way guys dress. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember distinctly when pants went from wearing them normally to wearing to them wear down them around below your ass. butt. Yeah. yeah. And like it was pretty much like around that time. Well, so the DVD that I bought was like a 10 year anniversary of the whatever edition. And it has a bunch of like little mini documentaries about different aspects of the film. And one of the interviews with Mona May, she was talking about the baggy pants and she just thought they were fucking hilarious. <laughs> and so that's why you see them so much in this movie. Well, they are everywhere in this movie. Yeah. So if I could just fashion thing real quick. So we noticed in Amy Heckerling's movies how important like shoes have been, mm-hmm. you know, about like the vans and everything like that. So Breckin Meyer is wearing Airwalks in this movie. I had the exact <laughs> same pair that he's wearing in this movie. Yeah. It freaked me out. It gave me like a total flashback this time. But it's just kind of cool. I, like we've gone from the vans and everything and now we're here. That was just a little fashion thing that I happened to notice. Yeah. At some point in the book, she was talking about the cinematographer, Bill Pope, who also shot The Matrix. As we dis- what? discussed before we started recording. And she said that like one of the really great things about working with him was that he really understood 
understood that fashion wasn't just this throwaway thing and that like it was just you know people in clothes because they had to be in clothes instead of you know people in very specific clothes and that he knew how to shoot them because it doesn't matter if they have all of this incredible detailing if you don't see it his mother was a dressmaker worked in a dress store owned a dress something like that and had three sisters growing up so like he understood that fashion is like important to people and I thought that was really interesting it's also worth pointing out that Amy Hackerling invented the outfit app the matching outfit app (laughs) she did which is crazy. She had played with paper dolls as a kid, which you have like an oh, yeah, outline of a doll dolls, and then you yeah. can cut out different outfits and put them yeah. on there. And so she was like, wouldn't it be cool if you could do that, but with your own body and on a computer? And they did it. I hope she gets residuals for that. She but... does not. Oh, no. I, didn't I think, think she, she would have had that. to file an IP patent. <laughs> Way back um, then. Wait, she can't just use this as... I don't know. I don't think she cares enough. Yeah. Check out this scene. (laughs) You saw Clueless. (laughs) So some other figures for you. Cher has 63 outfit changes of her own. And the costume budget was only about $200,000. So the fact that Mona May was able to pull in all this like incredible designer fashion and not just on the main characters, but like if you pay attention to the background characters, like they're all dressed really wonderfully too. Yeah, like Josh, his character is almost defined by his wardrobe. Right? Most of those clothes are his. <laughs> no, like in real sense. life. Yeah. So he has on this Amnesty International t-shirt and he was like, yeah, that's mine. That was his? Yeah. Oh, because I was like, that's a, such a Josh yeah. red flag right there. Yeah. So that's hilarious. They donated most of those clothes to charity when the movie was over, right? I think I read. Well, Alicia Silverstone actually got to keep oh, most right, right, of hers right. and then she later yes. donated them to charity. Yeah. At the very end, there's a wedding scene where Amy Heckerling's longtime co-collaborator, Twink Kaplan, who plays Miss Geist in this film, she gets married to Mr. Hall, played by Wallace Shawn. I forgot that the, basically the plot of this movie is getting their teacher laid mm-hmm. so that the yeah. kids are better grades. Another like movie about getting laid. Mm. Yeah. Wallace Shaw, my dinner with Andre. <laughs> Wallace Shaw, Princess Bride. Inconceivable. Yes. One of the articles that I read talked about a Amy Heckerling Film Festival that happened. I think at Savannah College of Art and Design and the Johnny Dangerously screening. Some guy was like laughing uproariously at every single joke. And when he walked out at the end, it was Wallace Shawn. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to say that was the night I was there. <laughs> As we know, the funniest movie of all time. Of course. But the dress that Twin Kaplan wears at the end, she was like intimately involved involved in designing that with Mona May and they had like engineered this crazy dress with this high 1940s collar and all of these like pieces that like only Mona May's seamstress her Croatian seamstress who used to be an architect was the only person who could piece it together Whoa. wow yeah <laughs> and you were saying that Mona May while we're talking about Mona May that she's in this movie as Cher's masseuse right yes Fabian the masseuse yeah. and the dress was like fitted so specifically to Twink that she couldn't actually sit down and had to use like an old Hollywood slant board oh, no way. that the actresses would use to keep yeah. getting wrinkled yeah it's weird that Cher has a line in here about how her clothes are too binding uh-huh. and literally the movie the clothes in this movie are too binding. Yeah. And Amy Hackerling is her maid of honor in yep. that wedding scene. Oh, and Because she, in does... real life, she had promised Twink that she would be a bridesmaid at her wedding, and because she hadn't gotten married yet, they did it in the movie. That's so sweet. And Isn't she's it? also the voice of Josh's mom, right? On yes. the phone? Yes. So the, the, that's the, the last of my specific things that I have about the costuming in this movie, but it'll probably come up again. But I just wanted to point that out because for a lot of women who are interested in film and filmmaking, costumes and makeup and these things that are considered frivolous or that are shuttled off into a separate award show or whatever, that's like the gateway for a lot of us to get interested in this. Like the first 
movie sets I was ever on, I was like doing wardrobe and makeup stuff. While we were sort of referring to past movies, especially in terms of fashion and stuff, one thing I caught this time because we had just watched her first five movies is how much the Breck and Meyer character reminded me of Spicoli, sort of like a mm-hmm. reformed <laughs> yeah. Spicoli, like a more human Spicoli, where he's just kind of the class clown that everybody still loves, mm-hmm. that he gets a round of applause for having the most tardies. <laughs> yeah. I love that that little speech he gives. Instead of a surfer, he's a skateboarder. That he just sort of feels that kind of spacey airhead, but sort of sweethearted person. But unlike being the bane of Mr. Han's existence, he sort of seems not admired by Wallace Shawn, but seems he's tolerated. (laughs) He's amused by him. As long as he doesn't try to commit suicide in his period. Which is a really weird attempt for future periods. Which I gotta say, Wallace Shawn as a teacher had more tolerance than any of my high school (laughs) teachers ever had. So the man is a saint. Well, so Breckenmeyer actually talked about how he not only based the character on Spicoli, but also on Bill and Ted. Oh, okay. Specifically, Theodore Logan. No kidding. Okay. Yeah. I see that. Who is a, a sweet airhead. Yeah. yeah, and also a direct descendant of Spicoli as well. So there's this whole lineage. And they watch Beavis and Butthead in this the movie. Great which is yet another step in that line. Wow. Wow. All right. Very, Very cool. cool. Yeah, I, was, <laughs> I was like, because I'd seen Fast Times a bunch. I've only seen this movie once before today. Oh, okay. What? So I know, I know, I know. Joey. Um, I said okay, and now I'm like in shock. <laughs> like I'm I've, rolling back I, I want to the last few seconds. I've seen most movies I've seen once. I mean, same. But this is the exception and, to the and rule. maybe more stunning, the first time I ever saw this movie in its entirety was like two years ago. Well, you know what? At least you now sister, you know though. that you'll probably watch it like once a year or something. Well, I think I, that's why I first saw it. My sister rented it. Yeah. And as I talked about months ago, we maybe on air, maybe not on air, maybe it was before we were when we were still planning this, was the show. I've seen episodes of the show because my sister watched right, the show. Right, right, right. Oh, and my first celebrity crush, weird. or more adult celebrity crush, because my first, as I talked about on uh, an episode, an early episode of Wistful, was Michelle Trachtenberg mm-hmm. in Harriet the Spy. But also my other sort of really early one was Rachel Blanchard, who plays Cher... She's the best death in the Rage carry, too. It was my favorite one. <laughs> I really got to give the Rage 2 a second chance. I uh, only saw it once. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, after your endorsement of it, got to go back. It is worth your reconsideration. Right. So I mentioned Bill Pope before, the director of photography. Did you know that he shot The Matrix? Among many other things. But like when he and Heckerling were first talking about what they wanted the film to look like, he was like having a hard time really like grasping what she was talking about. And so they had this long conversation and at the end. She was like, you know what? It really comes down to like, I want it to look bright and happy. And hmm. he was like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> so he had this like crazy. Oh, so it sounds like when we were watching a movie before and I was like, why don't movies look like this anymore? And you're like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I was like, like this. You have to be more specific. So I'm Amy Heckerling is what you're saying. Maybe. All right. I'm into it. I'll take it. But he had this crazy laser disc printer. So he like went to the library, took out all of these different comedies on laser disc, brought them home, went through and tried to print out as many frames as possible wow. that looked happy. The next day, spread them out on her office floor and she walked around and she made a pile of the happy ones and the pile of the not happy ones. And like all of them were technically happy, but like her, yeah. the ones that matched her vision. And he was like, all right, this is what the movie's going to look like. You know, because it doesn't strike me as a movie, immediately doesn't strike me as a movie with like that kind of style to it, with like a particular look. Uh-huh. But, but I it's think- 
so engineered. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it, even at times they throw in like handheld shots here and there and it's almost just like, yeah, just grab it as long as it follows, like as long as it comes out looking bright and shiny and happy, like good, do it. But like, I don't care if it's on a dolly or if you're holding it on your hand or whatever or anything. So even though that initial direction, there was a little bit of a bridge to cross, like after he got what she meant, it really felt like he knew exactly yeah. what she meant. And, and he, he said, was like, like off to the races. It, it made sense. Like once he had examples of what mm. she was talking about. Because there's probably like a technical term that he was searching for, <laughs> yeah. you know, and once he was yeah. able to visualize it, then he could yeah. comprehend it yeah. more properly. It's interesting that the movie is as bright as it is because it was a particularly rainy winter in Los Angeles. So all of the sunlight in this movie is fake, basically. That's oh, by Bill Pope's a master. Mind blowing. Yeah, yeah, that even that letting me know that may, like just confirms like the guy's a genius. Yeah, but we had talked, I think, in the Fast Times episode about how her movies seem really simple mm-hmm. as far as the way that they look, but they're really like there are specific choices made. And like, it's not, it's incredibly complex and engineered and thought out, but it reads as just being effortless. And that's kind of like part of the genius of her filmmaking. And I think the same thing is true of the storytelling. Mm-hmm. So I Googled this morning, I was like, is Clueless based on Shakespeare? And it's, no, <laughs> it's based on Jane Austen's Emma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was, it feels... Very loose, very, like very loose. You could watch it and not think of it at all but I was I was just admiring and it's again this is mostly credit to her but like the way that all the characters intersect mm-hmm. like this feels like a story that we've seen a lot but it doesn't feel rehashed you know what I mean like yeah. it feels familiar and comfortable but yeah. not in a bad way yeah it's which good. is really difficult to do I think because mm-hmm. you need to be able to tell a story that people can understand and feel like oh I know what's going on here but then also not be like oh but I've seen this a lot before yeah there's actually quite a lot going on in the movie for me I feel though one of the best jobs it does is with that sort of familiar trope of like reinventing someone or something like that like the idea that Cher has this project of a person and it's almost like a Frankenstein kind of thing where it's like, I didn't think about it in those terms but that's no, funny it's, it's not that close but I'm just but saying, I would love like, to see that version of this movie but like you're saying like this is comprised of elements that aren't necessarily fresh and original but put together in this certain way feels new and feels fresh and stuff like that and then when you recognize things it makes it made me wonder like is this the first time that I heard that or was that from another movie or something like that or are they referencing something or is this the reference like it feels very much its own thing even when it's borrowing stuff and because she has this like crazy film vocabulary there really are so many shots in this movie that are taken directly from other movies like Gigi is the fountain scene and when she's coming down the stairs at the end right too Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm Or not the end, but when she's coming down on the date. Yeah, I have some of them written down. The Gigi references, which is also about a girl having a relationship with an older brother, I think. Something like that. Well, I mean, it's weird if they're blood related. Right, which they are clearly not in this movie. They are not. They are stepping in. (laughs) And I see Joey staring at me. I said it before on one of the Cage Club Revisited. On the Seeking Justice uh, episode. On the Seeking Justice episode. For some reason. It got clipped. I don't know what happened there. But yeah, my older brother is married to his stepsister. And I was like, Mike, this is weird. And he's like, I don't think it's weird. I don't think it's very weird. Amy Heckerling's grandparent, like one of her grandparents or something, were stepbrother and stepsister. And so she didn't think it was weird either. There's no blood relation. I mean, there's all this taboo, like, especially online nowadays. But, like, I never... Are you talking about porn? (laughs) (laughs) Did not know what he meant by that at first. But that makes sense now. Oh, it's all, like, porn is nowadays. All porn now is is incest porn. It's the invoke thing. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't get it either. And, like, that's maybe my values are different but like I just never saw it as taboo to begin with I guess because it's part of my family my family was always sort of Adam's family growing up though because 
the family tree is all different directions. But I mean, if you were stepbrother or stepsister with Alicia Silverstone or Paul Rudd, like, could yeah. you blame them? Oh, of course. Well, no, Even I don't blame any step siblings that want to get together because they're not blood related. Of so. all of the of all of the movies that he's been in, I feel like Paul Rudd is kind of like not least charming, but not overtly Paul Ruddy in this. He sort of he, seems like a more. Well, he's this was like his first film role. He's or not his like film the role, Paul Rudd. I feel yeah. like he's not playing his not version a of himself, himself yet. Yeah, yeah. like this is you still know, five years before Wet Hot. But he yeah, and even is I'd say so charming in this. Even before, like once Anchorman kind of hit, then it's like okay, he's gonna do that for like every movie, and it's gonna be great. But yeah. oh well, we also decided and this is similar. It, I'm going to get to what we were just talking about, but Carrie and I decided that now movies that just like the, there's the before common era and then Anno Domini in the year of our Lord or whatever they <laughs> now made that. So that's not churchy separate. It's not after death. I think anymore. it's just common era. Com- before common era, common era. BCE and CE. We've all we're made that doing, common era. We're doing BCE before clueless era and then Anno AC in the year of our share. And so I guess <laughs> if this is now, if 1995 is the year zero, then in the year five, you'll be in Wet Hot. In the year nine, he will be in Anchorman, right? So the ascension of Paul Rudd coincides with this film. So And he'll be back. Uh, he'll be in another Emmy Heckerling movie down the line. So Which one? Oh, the I Can Never Be Your Woman? Yeah, with Michelle Pfeiffer. Remember? And John Lovitz. Okay. Oh, we just... <laughs> and Michelle Pfeiffer just featured little... on Hairspray on High School Slumber Party. Yeah. Also, while <laughs> While we're talking about loose family <laughs> relations in this movie. Dan Hedaya. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Alien 4. And Joe vs. the Volcano. But Dan Hedaya, you just covered for Wishful Thinking in Dick, plays a fantastic Richard Nixon. He's yep. Yep. so great. good. I do feel like pairing him, does. just like his demeanor, uh-huh. I don't know what he's Get like in, in real life, but... Completely different. So oh, he was because... in some of those like behind-the-scenes documentaries and stuff, and when he was interviewed, he seems like so timid and like just an eccentric, is, timid yeah. man. It feels like, in a way, Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams are like spiritual sisters. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I just imagine... like whether he plays the same kind of character all the time or not, but, like, that gruff, you know, uh, professional appearance with, like, just, like, these bimbo, so sweet and so charming. Bimbo is the wrong word. Airheady, kind of, spacey, kind of... uh, It's a great contrast, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's terrific. But what I did want to say, I'm glad that you corrected me here, because when Jordan was on our Fast and Furious 6 episode, we pointed out how The Rock, Hobbs, in those movies, shout out Too Fast, Too Forever, go listen to that, Uh, Hobbs calls everyone woman. He's like, listen, woman, or whatever. Mm. And Jordan's like, this is not cool. And Joe was like, I don't know why I call all women women or woman. Jordan's like, well, that's weird. You should stop doing that. And here's why. (laughs) Because that's like the last thing you want to be identified by. And in this movie, multiple times, Donald Faison says to Dee, you're a woman. And then he explains himself. He explains himself. But but it wasn't just that. Like, he was like, I think he was explaining the worst things. But I caught early on. I was like, oh, like even back in 1995. Yeah. But it's not it's not cool. It's no. hashtag not okay. It's not it's not the worst thing in the world, but it's also not a good thing to do. Thanks for explaining that, Joey. I want to go all the way back to I, I so your no. teacher lessons on what is or is not to okay. The listener. I'm not talking to you. No, you I'm know kidding. These I know. Yeah. I'm getting some serious shade from Kara today about <laughs> About mansplaining things and I'm sorry. I just you know, it's been it's been a rough year for women in general. I'm an ally. Uh, we're gonna cover more Dan Hedaya. Joe vs. Volcano, he's Joe's boss. He oh, was in yeah. Alien Four, so you can catch that Winona Forever episode right now if you want. But I knew him first from Blood Simple. So to to hear that in reality he's just like a nice normal guy. Like I wouldn't say normal. Well not normal. Okay, well nice. no, what actor is normal. Yeah. But like that he's a nice guy and that he's nothing like his on-screen persona is very interesting. It makes me believe he's a much better actor than I already gave him credit for because yeah. I... 
thought that he was, I find him terrifying. Guy, a yeah, lot, you know, like yeah, and like, he doesn't even have to say anything. He just got that look. Speaking of Blood Simple, there was a thing that I'm sure was maybe in the book, but at least on IMDb about how well in this movie he has a line like, "If anything happens to my daughter, I've got a 45 yeah. shovel." I doubt mm-hmm. anyone would miss you. And yep. in Blood Simple, he was shot with a 45 and killed, and then yep. buried with a shovel. So yeah. sort oh. of a shout out to a movie from 14 or whatever. I mean, that, I think that goes back to what Kara says that Heckerling is just like this encyclopedia of film knowledge too. Mm-hmm. So she could just like pull lines like that and Easter eggs and like they work perfectly for the movie but it's also a shout out and a callback I think I'm most jealous about or jealous of whatever the whatever the word is of directors who reach a certain status like she's at now is you can be like oh I love that guy in that movie like let's just get him in my movie and like Mm. assuming that they're free and that they want to do that like you can just be like oh they're my favorite whatever let's put them in my movie like that is just so cool like it's just like and to have the to have to be open to be like on set and I mean because I I mean who knows if that line was in the script you don't know if she cast him but like she had him on the set and I'm sure there was a conversation between them about like okay how would you intimidate your daughter's date right and then they probably oh well like this happened in one movie this and then maybe they're like oh blood simple like dude that 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 and like so just the idea that they could jazz like that on set Karen, is I, really cool. I have two questions for you about the yes. writing. Number one, did she write this by herself or were there collaborators? No, she, this was her script. And number two, was there improv? Do you know if there was like improvisation on set or is it? A little bit, okay. yeah. The script was pretty much fully baked, but there were like, you know, little asides and stuff. Like when Travis has joined AA and he brings his bongs to Cher's Pismo Beach disaster relief supply gathering thing. She's like, I don't know where to put this, the kitchen, I guess. And the line when he's like, oh yeah, that's where I used to keep it. That was an improvisation. So just one example for you. Do you know how much of this is from the adaptation of the Emma novel? Oh, very little. So like, it's just like a basic concept. So like the idea that her mother's passed and she's got a stepbrother, that kind of thing? Or is it more Maybe, like... Maybe, I don't know. I haven't even read it. I, I'm just curious. Yeah, I was, gonna I was watch not the it. best student of literature. I was going to watch... There's a Gwyneth Paltrow version I was oh, yeah. going to watch, but it just, as always, just didn't have enough time to get to there yet. Because I was curious how much was her and how much did she use, you know? And it just, it feels so original yeah. that it just seems like she probably used the bare bones. Mm-hmm. And she later she said needed. that she regretted telling people that it was an adaptation because then she wound up in the category of like being nominated for best adapted screenplay and not best original screenplay which it basically was well she nominated was this nominated i think for best adapted was it a win or no no she won a, a few other awards for it, but I don't remember what they are. Well, I, and I, again, I have not read Emma. I, I really want to read more Jane Austen because I like her writing. Have you um, seen Austen Land? No, but I love Carrie Russell. Oh, she's so good in it. I love that movie. I saw Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. Does that count for anything? <laughs> no. Maybe. Pride, Prejudice is really funny, though. Like, you know, I. The original, I yeah. really enjoy that. But what I gathered, again, this is not knowing what Emma is about or doing literally any research, but I sort of got the sense, like, it's kind of like the, the interplay of relationships. Like, the that's why I Googled, is it based on Shakespeare? Because it feels very sort of, like, old-timey, comedically, the way that they, like, sort of like Much Ado About Nothing, where yeah. they're all, like, passing notes and trying to set yeah. people up with each other. And, like... And, and there's more, there are a lot of, like, Shakespeare references in this. Like, they call money ducats. Mm-hmm. And, like, I didn't realize that that was a Shakespeare term until high school English class, like, senior, yeah. we always 
called money ducats. I've like, never, oh, really? I don't, I don't even think yeah, I yeah. This movie. Paul Rudd was in the Romeo plus Julia. He played uh-huh. Paris in that and stuff. So like, and plus the conversation they have about Hamlet and the car. Yeah, Ham- and I think Hamlet. the <laughs> quote that she writes in the letter to Miss Geist is Shakespeare, maybe, but, but she, it's from Cliff Notes. So I don't she, know for I, sure. I know at one point she misquotes Tale of Two Cities. I don't know if that's the point, but like the point is, it does feel very much like it could be from any of that stuff. Yeah. At any or or not even from it, but that at it in its current state can fit in mm-hmm. with those types of works. I also do really in a weird. This doesn't really have anything to do with Clovis, but like it's amazing to me that like so many of our stories are based on one person or if you believe in the theory of a collection of people or Shakespeare or Francis Bacon, those like 30 (laughs) stories or whatever are like most of our stories, Mm -hmm. which is bananas. Mm -hmm. Well, I just think it's a testament to how strong they are that you can retell them in so many different ways and, and disguise them and mash them together and to make so much different entertainment. Like those core stories are so strong to begin with is kind of insane to think about. And Clueless actually has set off this wave in the late nineties and early two thousands of these adaptations of classic stories, these modernized retellings yeah. of them. I just watched Save the Last Dance the other night. That was one of them. I remember O. O was another was one. one. Mm-hmm. Also know, starring Julia Stiles, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we mentioned Romeo plus Juliet. That was modernized as a modern retelling. Oh, we mentioned that hours ago. A couple a couple podcasts ago we were talking no, about No, I just Romeo talked about it, that Paul Rudd was in it. Oh, okay. Not a lot, though. No, he's in it, though. Yeah. But I think there is, and we're sort of still getting off topic here, I think there's a difference between doing a modern telling of like the straight up story yeah. and doing like the story but like Warm Bodies which is Romeo and Juliet yeah. which I'm still bitter I think I did I tell that story on this podcast or a different podcast uh, not this one yet. I wanted the Romeo and Juliet but Romeo's a zombie and also it's a musical and I pitched that in Tobin's screenwriting class and the class was like no boo dumb and then two <laughs> years later Warm Bodies came out and I'm real mad about it not that I would have written the full movie or like it would have gotten it made but like I had the idea yeah. people were like that's dumb and I was like alright well if it makes you feel any better my student film was pretty much like kind of looper to a degree and then like looper comes out like a year later and I was like well I made in one of my first film classes an adaptation of a Raw Dahl story called The Smoker and everyone was like this Reservoir Dogs and I was like oh I haven't seen that yet (laughs) that's awesome cool whatever (laughs) which was also that was like a Chow Yun Fat movie that Tarantino saw and was like I'm just gonna switch this that and that well it's weird to see like and that's another thing I don't know I talked about this a long time ago on a podcast but do you know about the series the web series there's like four of them everything is a remix oh right yeah no, I don't think so so everything is remix is basically about how it's sort of it covers a lot of different things but one of the things is about how there's 15 stories or whatever and everything is just a retelling of that and they have a whole entire like bonus thing about Tarantino but it's weird to watch like Lady Snowblood and see a scene that is the same scene in Kill Bill but it's just the original scene that he just like lifted and put in his movie yeah and the good filmmakers, whether it's Tarantino or Amy Heckerling or whatever, who are able to take an idea that exists already and then put it in their story and have it make sense and have it feel more like an homage than a ripoff or more of like a, a loving, you know, like Mike was saying, you know, a, a knowledge of cinema and history as opposed to just being like, oh, yeah, this is that scene from another movie. Like, I don't like, why is it? Here? Yeah. Well, somebody said, and I don't know who it was, maybe Andy Warhol, probably somebody else, a good artist borrow and great artist steal. Yes. Mm-hmm. But also, on the other hand, I feel like we say that there's only these 14 stories, but we haven't really let women tell stories. So I think there's like maybe a lot that we haven't explored here. Bad example, because we're talking about Clueless, and this is an adaptation and spawn this whole but conversation. But it's also an adaptation maybe of another woman's story. Like, it's true. the same true. sort yeah, of, right. you know, 
maybe, maybe one day we will have that. That's the other thing we've talked about again on Seven Makers about how like we would love to alternate men with women, but there's just not enough. There's just I don't know if that's entirely true. I just think it's not in the mainstream. I'm sure yeah. we could find enough, but we'd have well, to I mean, go. Yeah, we could do Agnes Varda and stuff to hit our criteria, of... which are stupid criteria. Well, we are we are widening the net, but like, <laughs> yeah. are there a lot of female directors who have who also primarily write their own movies and also have made say six to fifteen movies? Like, there's right. not that many. Like, no, we, there are there's not. dozens of guys that we have. Just again, like, I, I just feel like doing the mini episodes, and this is about cinemakers, not necessarily this, but also fits into this conversation I think doing the the standalone episodes that we've been doing with Nick or the two or three movies I think that's an interesting standalone sort of thing and that doesn't you could be a man or a woman for that but if it's over like the Soderbergh thing was very rewarding and interesting but it was also super super long like it was like 33 episodes or whatever like I feel like that sweet spot of like where it's a handful of movies that have like an established a pattern to this sort of feels like right in the sweet spot of like 10 episodes 9 movies plus a TV series where it's like this is you can see her vision and not have to be doing this for months and months and months. Yeah. Just off the top of my head, maybe because I just watched Wayne's World, but Penelope Spears. I was just about to bring her up. Her filmography is crazy because she's done documentaries. Mostly documentaries. Mostly, yeah. Yeah. And then just talking about her because she did the rise and fall of Western civilization. Was that her or is that her? Yeah. Well, she directed Black Sheep and that's why we did a Western And that's the other thing. So she's done, she's like, I feel like she's done all over the board where she's done documentary, comedy, drama, like, you know, she's extremely versatile and had a great run when she was allowed to have a run. Mm -hmm. Like, she was on fire, you know? She's and building houses now. Well, that's oh, good. But, but, it, but oh, I mean, uh, unless she Happy decided for herself that it was time for her to stop, there's yeah. really no reason that she should not have been making yeah. movies through the 2000s. And she, she, she I listened to a, in a fairly recent interview with her. She has been working on a dock, like, in her basement, you know, Crazy. for a long time. It's just like, whatever. But mostly what she's doing is building houses because she was like, I made millions of dollars yeah. on those big studio <laughs> comedies. Like, I get to do whatever I want now, basically. Like That's great. Outside of the studio system. Okay, good for her. Yeah. Good for her. She's a good example of this, because I was like, after watching Black Sheep, which is not great, I was just like, I do want to see more of her movies, and I definitely want to rewatch the Decline trilogy, but they're hard to find. Distribution is a huge roadblock for women, especially since so much of that pipeline was controlled by the Weinsteins for so long. Oh, and also right. distribution, just the documentaries is difficult, yeah. too. It's like to couple that two together. I just looked at her filmography, and it is all over the place like right? I don't, like I don't know man or woman if there's anybody I can find who is like weirder than like suburbia wings oh, world suburbia. rising yeah. fall Western yeah. civilization little rascals black right? sheep <laughs> mega death music videos like what Beverly Hillbillies she's, Beverly she's, Hillbillies she's very clearly just following either the money or her bliss or Both. whatever yeah. Like, yeah just like it's a combo I feel like it, I think they lined up right the money was speaking to her sensibilities for a for lot of a, for, for a period of time she actually yeah. doesn't like most of the studio comedies that she made like with the exception of Wayne's World and like they weren't great but specifically with Black Sheep Paramount was like please make this movie we'll give you two million dollars and she was like dumbfounded <laughs> and they thought that she wanted more money so then they offered her 275 and she was like I guess I have to make this movie now <laughs> well that's wow. the same thing like I guess it's kind of the one for you one for them kind of situation yeah I also feel like if you're the type of director 
filmmaker who makes the movies you want to make, but then also, like we saw with Amy Heckerling a movie or two ago when she had to do Look Who's Talking To, where the studio was like, hey, we just made $300 million. Here's probably a stupid amount of money. And she's like, oh, fuck, I guess I got But like, But then for the rest of her life, she can do whatever she wants. Yeah, theoretically. Yes. Right, right, right. Um, It must be weird, is what I'm saying, when you are able to choose your own projects and then also to have been paid a lot of money for things. Like, I'm sure that there are lots of studio movies that are very, very good and very, like, the directors love. But I feel like if you're able to make your own thing and then are also, like, paid a lot of money to do, like, a job for hire, you're probably not going to, like, on average, not like those more often than you're going to like those. But, I mean, you might have, you might find good experiences in them, but it's much better to blaze your own path. And in a movie like this, where, like, you're able to get financing and budget, but also make the movie you want to make and tell the story you want to tell with the actors that you want to use, that's kind of the best of all worlds, maybe. Yeah, and they were really, like, they painstakingly cast this movie. They spent months looking for the right people. They did a wonderful job. They did. Alicia Silverstone's, like, perfect. She is incredible in this movie. Like, even just watching her now, I don't, how old? Because she's playing a She was, like, 17 or 18. Wow, because I would have thought that she was in her 20s playing this role because she just nails it. It's yeah, so she's very sophisticated. sophisticated yeah, it's crazy. Wise beyond her age, you can tell. Yeah, and just is a goddess, like, from another planet. She's beautiful. She's charming. She's hilarious. cast for yeah. this. Yeah. She was super sick the entire time that they were no filming. Way. Yeah, because she, like, this was, like, her eighth movie in a row. She had just been working constantly. Whoa. And she she's... Just- in almost every frame of this movie so she was like exhausted and so she would take like micro naps between takes which other people found very disturbing because she would just be like dead asleep and then she would wake up and do the scene and like for her to be as on as she was is just absolutely remarkable yeah who from this movie made it to the TV show? I think Donald Faison was in the TV Donald show. Donald Faison, uh, uh, the girl that plays Amber. Wallace Shawn, Mr. Hall. I think Twink Kaplan for the first season. How long was the show on? I think three seasons, but Heckerling only worked on the first one. It's weird. They made a live-action show for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure as well. I'm just mentioning it now because Kara really? is the Bill and Ted expert on that on those episodes and stuff. But yeah, we didn't so watch it or mention any of that kind of stuff. But it's just like TV shows made for movies. Give it a try. Isn't this the second one, too? They tried to do a uh, fast, fast time show for yeah. her movies. I think they never when... did a Look Who's Talking show, huh? Yeah, that's uh, actually how she met the costume designer, Mona May. From Fast Times TV show? Uh-huh. Very cool. That was worth it in the end, then, mm-hmm. for, that, for that reason alone. You know what I really liked in this movie? That I felt like, mo- like we always discuss, most of the times this is a movie, it's done very terribly, but here it's sparse and necessary. Her voiceover. Mm-hmm. Her voiceover, it like pops in and out of the movie at the perfect time. Like You almost forget there's a voiceover. Yeah. And then she just like explain how she's feeling in this moment, you know, and it's like so helpful and so nice. It is so helpful. And we see so lit, we get so little of like women's inner lives in movies. And yeah. this movie just executes it so wonderfully and so perfectly. And uh, they didn't put in the voiceover until like very, very late in the editing process. And they said really? that it was, I think it like they had planned to put it in there, but like it was only like once they had that in there that they were like, oh shit. Yeah. Because yeah, it's like, to me, I, I felt like it was part of the script mm-hmm. like that's what's so weird about it. like I was like wow she's such a good writer that she knows how to like control her voiceovers whereas like most of the time like it's just rambling voiceover right left and right tagged on at the end because they couldn't like make the edit make sense because you can't understand the movie yeah right? yeah yeah so that's kind of crazy how they're like oh we just need like a little pinch here a little dash there and something else there and it just 
boom, like elevate. And she's worked with the same editor, I think, at least since the Fast Times TV show. So, and they they have a chapter in the book about editing, and and she said that she and the editor like think very similarly, and that's why like they have such a good relationship, and they're able to work in such a great way because they're able to like sit there next to each other and have the same thought and like execute it so perfectly. Were there dream sequences in this, or did I miss? No, but Jordan actually, when we did our episode of Wistful Thinking, really kind of started to put her finger on this, and then it like came to fruition as I was reading the book. The the whole thing is a dream sequence. Yeah. Like that that this whole yeah. thing is a dream of Amy Heckerling's. Like this is her dream world. That like because in this world it's a fully racially integrated high school. Everyone gets along. And what Jordan had pointed out, she was like, "Do you think that people are always clapping for Cher, or is that just <laughs> in her imagination?" And I was like, "Oh, I never thought about it that way." So it's not that Cher's delusional, right? No. Like she's not imagining all no, this attention. No, it's just that this whole thing is a that, dream sequence. Yeah, basically. it's this ideal like dream basically like living the dream your ideal high school experience well it's fully integrated unless you don't own a BMW then you can't hang out with the Persians or the Armenians (laughs) or whoever that that group is so that's really a funny moment because there was a group of kids in our the campus TV station no no When, he, when she said the Persian Mafia, we had the Korean Posse, which I didn't, I mean, it was just all, you know, all the Korean kids hung out together and they looked really mean and they dressed like gang, like hip hop gangsters and stuff. But like, I grew up with a lot of those kids in grade school and stuff. So like, we were always friendly. So I never understood why people were afraid of them. But my high school was very clicky like that, where the burnouts definitely hung out together and like the very popular kids, like all were a group and like and sat the on the- dads hung out together. <laughs> oh yeah, we all hung out by ourselves. But like- no, like the popular kids would like sit on the steps at lunch every day and like everyone in the cafeteria had to like look at them while they ate lunch. Like it was really weird. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> Just by proximity of where yeah. they sat and stuff. What I love about that scene where she's, I think that's when she's introducing all tie to the school. Like mm-hmm. these are these people, these are these people. It's like little details. Like they walk past two girls. One has a, uh, just at a nose job once yeah, just at a yeah. and so she's got like the bandage on and just like they're, they're not mentioned they just walk by like they're sort of essentially featured extras but just like oh we live in a world where like 17 year olds I guess because we're in California Southern California Beverly Hills we're, specifically we're, yeah, where yeah. they're just getting nose jobs at 17 well I also noticed and now this is just because the actors had them but the kids with tattoos mm-hmm. part of me was like you know why would his mom be upset if he shaved his head but yeah. he has like two <laughs> tattoos <laughs> especially because we just watched two Cage movies that we recorded for Cage Club Revisited and like Donald Faison how old was he in this because he looks like he's I think he was like 19 because he could be like if he said he was 30 he'd be like yeah that makes sense yeah he looks like Scrubs Donald Faison I think he doesn't I I just I think he never aged yeah oh okay well I thought he was like a very older looking high school kid Mm. so like if he was 17 like he's very it's like like Cage came out looking like a 30 year old man I think he's the mustache partially for me even though he's got braces the mustache canceled it out braces are crazy but I I think like it's the mustache I think it's just also like he's like he's built like he's not like yeah, jacked right. or ripped. Like I mean, he's, he's just like big. He's just he's, like, his yeah. body he's like a formed. fully formed mm-hmm. man. man, which yeah. happens yeah. in real life. But right. it's also like he just feels like if, if you said he was eighteen or whatever, nineteen, I would believe you. If you also say, oh, he was thirty-two, I'd be like, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Yep. So the reason he has braces in this is because he has like an extra tooth, and it looked weird when he smiled. 
so know. they put fake braces on him. Oh, really? Okay. okay. I like that. Let's talk about Brittany Murphy because she's oh, yeah. Yeah, the best Brittany Murphy. I miss her. Not in nearly enough. And well, I was talking to Kara before we started recording. Like, I think you were in the other room on the phone, but I was like, she reminds me of Lorna from Orange is the New Black, the basically the, the Jewish princess in the in the prison. She's got that same sort of New York accent that just like, there's no way to not love it. Did you know Brittany Murphy originally from New Jersey? Northern New Jersey. Oh, Ooh, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And her I stomping know grounds that. right now. But she's just so good. And I don't think the, the makeover, the pretty womanization of her is that extreme. Yeah. She comes in like. Yeah. They had to ugger up a bit. They ugged her up a little bit, but they also like, it's mostly the clothes. Like, yeah. they just throw in different clothes. But there's like little moments, like, especially with the clothes where she goes to that party where oh Cher God. is dancing. And then, you know, so one where Paul Rudd starts dancing with her and she's like, what should I do with my jacket? And Cher's like, I just tied it around your waist. And they cut back to her. And Multiple like, not, times. And she's wearing it different. Just be like, well, why are they doing that? But like, she's got, she's had a, a, a jacket and then around her waist and then around her head and just like, like <laughs> she, because she's standing there so awkwardly and she doesn't know what to do with herself. Oh, that's me. I see myself reflected in that so much. It's crazy because like, there's technically like nothing wrong with Ty mm-hmm. when she shows up and it's only through the lens of Cher right. that she sees a problem. Because she's actually like, for as naive as she seems, she's the most world weary one. Like, yeah, she's she's, she's clearly done a bunch of drugs. For, she's not the virgin. She, I mean, she's never had straight friends before. But it's sort of around this time, I'm so on Cher's side that I don't even realize that she's about to do something wrong by trying to make over <laughs> right. Ty. Like, like it's going to turn her into somebody that she's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also sort of like what she ends up focusing on aren't exactly the best attributes to being like a good person necessarily. Well, the best you attributes know? in Cher's life. Well, she's saying like, we're going to work on your accent and all that. We got to lose this. We got to lose that. And it's like, you're not, you're not letting her be herself. You're trying to fashion her into you mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and stuff and so I didn't really pick up on that the first couple of viewings but it's my understanding that that actually is from Jane Austen so that's the sort of the Emma and part she does of it. it so well that she essentially yeah. gets she becomes second fiddle like she like time right. comes mm-hmm. when people realize that she's had sex that she almost died all this different stuff and she created like, share 2.0 I was held at gunpoint they're like shut up like she's talking right now like, <laughs> yeah. yeah so like I said before everyone in the movie is, was cast really meticulously except for the guy that holds share at gunpoint because it was somebody who we would know was originally cast. Oh, I don't it should have been the extra, that the the glorified extra that Amy Heckling has put in the most of her movies, remember? Oh, yeah. No, he, I don't think he's in this one. <laughs> no, I, I don't think I, so either. When I was watching it last night, I had an eye out for him, but I didn't see him. But that like came together like two hours before they shot the scene because the person who was originally cast like couldn't do it. And Scott Rudin, who executive produced the movie, had just met with that guy, the guy who's in it, a few days before and the guy had like given him his screenplay so when he got a call from Scott Rudin he was like oh my god <laughs> but it was just screenplay. like hey can you do me a favor and show up on set in two hours He's got still four cool lines for yeah. you. still cool I mean but apparently that guy's a director now so. okay yeah. I like the uh, little visit to the valley in this movie, Valley Girl, and, you know... And they I must ask about Cher, does this girl look like she eats sushi in the valley? <laughs> That's from We Are Your Friends. Oh, the okay. inspiration, it's perfect. I mean, you would hate the movie, but if you watch the movie, you would love that line. Really? I, I haven't seen it, but I don't know if fan is the word that I would use, but I've been obsessed with catfish since, like, the movie. Oh. And Max is... Of course. ...was Neve's sidekick on the TV show, and he directed the movie. Yes. So oh, I've been really? wanting to see it, because... Yeah. yeah, you didn't know that? I didn't ever put... Joe won't shut up about that. Oh, my He God. loves... My, like he, the reason I think that they found the movie, aside from the fact that it's about EDM DJs, is because they love... That he and Rachel love catfish. Really? And yeah. Matt, I can't and, make it through... Well, like, I was following Max on Instagram for a really long episodes. time. And, <laughs> so he would be, like, posting about how he's, like, not going to be on this episode of Catfish because oh, he was off shooting his movie. That's so yeah. weird. I, okay. 
And there was one of the guests that we had, I don't remember who it was or what show it was, but they also love catfish. I was like, I guess I'm just going to listen to Joe and this guy talk about catfish <laughs> for 10 minutes because, oh no, it was Iceland. Iceland loves catfish Iceland too. likes catfish mm-hmm. too? Okay. She loves Max Joe's. Like, she loves all of that, but yes. Yeah. Huh. It's, and well, he's I'm, also in the movie for a scene. Like, I'm just glad Joe and Iceland could connect on some level at some point. They're, they're better now. They're, they're okay. I do want to talk also about, again, about Brittany Murphy, bringing it back to Brittany Murphy, that this is something we talked about. That is the uh, episode image for Fast Times at Richmond High on cageclub.me. Oh. We have just like when Phoebe Cates and Jennifer Jason Lee are slicing the salami. I would say sawing is more appropriate. While talking about having sex and like lasting forever. Yeah. In this movie, Ty, Brittany Murphy, is holding up the breadstick oh. and using it, gesturing Just as long as his you-know-what isn't crooked. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And there was a thing that, that I read that they wanted to set that, that in the script, I think it was set in the California Pizza Kitchen. And then the executives found out what they wanted to do there. They're like, no, 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 no. Oh, the execs of like California the Pizza Kitchen? Uptight, like, yeah. Like guy, like, oh no, we can't, like, our breadsticks aren't dicks. Our brand can't be associated with penises. It's like, come on, I'm just glad Heck only managed to sneak in more dicks into the movies. Her <laughs> goddamn pizza chain in malls. Like, you're, you don't have a great reputation as it is. Yeah. As if, whatever. Their food is, like, not bad. You've had it? Yeah. I've had California but you pizza can't, you like can't go much. in there thinking, like, I'm going to eat some pizza. No, it's gourmet That's a shit. It's like, yeah. It's not it's pizza. pizza. It's something else. It's the same thing, like, at Ramapo when I would go to Late Night at the Birch. <laughs> And I, they yeah. had the pizza there, and I was like, I can't eat this because my brain will not accept it as pizza, but if I cut it up with a fork and knife and just pretend it was like generic Italian dish, right. I would be like, oh, this isn't too bad. But, like, <laughs> but it looked like pizza, and you could eat it like pizza, but if I did that, I was like, this is disgusting. But if I was like, oh, it's just some kind of Come cheese pasta. and sauce and yeah. bread dish, it's a pasta it, was, thing. it was fine. That's a true story that I like, tricked my brain into being like this disgusting pizza. You like, should tell that on edible. foodie films, and then you should talk about milk on foodie films. Oh, oh the milk? The woods milk. Milk even, is gone now, I think. Oh, uh, even sad. I was brought to meet the milk face to face one year when we yeah when we, we year after. went to see Tobin's uh, picture Tobin's office that's funny I will definitely talk about you know that's a deep 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 cut today <laughs> the episode of now and again that came out today December 1st is the network's 750th episode this is a very historic even that said all 750 episodes the thing that I am that was the most successful thing I've ever done on the internet is that goddamn gallon of milk. Like that is, or <laughs> half gallon of milk. Nothing else that I've done, even trying to like build an audience, has worked as much as milk. Well, milk was just a phenomenon, but milk is definitely a story <laughs> to be telling on either foodie films or when Brian eventually graduates from high school. And goes, <laughs> oh, goes to college. <laughs> college slumber party? <laughs> You'd have to change the title. College dorm room mixer or something. Well, we talked about the dick reference, but there's actually two menstruation references in this oh, movie. I love the first one. Can I say? Sure. I was surfing the crimson wave. That's actually the second okay, one. Okay, but I got, because I, like as a guy, I picked up on that immediately. Yeah. I thought that was awesome code talk. I was like, that's great writing. Yeah. I thought that was No, it's a, it's a great euphemism. Earlier in the movie, when Dion confronts Murray about finding a braid in the backseat of his car that is not hers, and he's like, was it that time of the month or something? And then everybody gasps. Um, I just point this out because menstruation, like childbirth, as we talked about, it's a fact of life for a lot of women, and we don't ever see it in movies almost at all. And like so many of the people that I know, their high school experience was largely marked by like trying not to bleed on things. So it should be in a lot more movies, and I appreciate when it is. And yeah. 
heckling hit us with two. I don't think Steven Soderbergh or Christopher Nolan had a single menstruation reference. Of course they did. <laughs> That's so well, weird. It's just, I wonder what that is. You know what, though? Like, it is seriously bizarre that one of the most common things that happens to people in existence is one of the least common things portrayed on screen. Like, that is, is kind of disturbing. It it's disturbing. It's logical based on what we know about... Who runs the right. industry about men, because men don't get the period. And because it's, so it's I mean, it's... Instead, it's, there's lots of boner jokes. Yeah, but it's also an incredibly taboo subject, not just in this culture, as but around the world. Your stepbrother, more so, yeah, actually, and it's even more natural. The world. <laughs> and what you're talking about is completely nature. natural. Yeah. yeah. To this day, there are still girls all around the world who uh, don't wind up finishing school because they don't have access to menstrual supplies, or because they have a menstrual disorder that is so painful and distracting they can't manage right. to participate in their Cause lives. Because it's not just bleeding. I mean, you get the cramps and the headaches and the, all the body aches. I mean, all the things that I will never know entirely what has happened. Guys, yeah. it's fucking terrible. I wake I, up every morning saying, thank God I'm the one because <laughs> I could not handle it. But on the other end, like, that's why I, I have said it before. Like, that's why I watch movies to learn about experiences I will never have ever, you know? And so when I see a movie about women that that doesn't come up, yeah, it it's throws surprising up a lot of flares to me. I mean, it's surprising to me because of my health issues. It's been so much a part of my life and so much a part of the lives of so many women that I know. But then also, one time I was at a friend's house and we were talking with her mom. And apparently, she and her mother like don't get cramps and have never experienced PMS. And I was like, I didn't know this was possible. <laughs> this is crazy. You know? So like, there is this huge diversity of experience, even just within this one thing. And the fact that we don't get to see any of those things represented on screen is a huge problem. But thank God for Amy Hackerling and two well, off-handed jokes in a movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I wish it was in there more. In all honesty, you know, there's movies like the Birds of Prey movie coming out, which is like the female-led DC Universe superhero movie. Like, if they don't make at least a joke about their cycle sinking or something, like, well, you have but to at mention the same time, something. Like, I, don't, I don't need more of that. Like, no, that's no, the that's, last thing we need more of. We don't of. want it that here. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's a poor example. However, in more female-led films, like, maybe not action films like that or per se, but yes. Definitely it, it, not shouldn't be parts of huge billion dollar franchises but, but why not though on the other no, hand, I agree like, don't joke about it like I just did but like actually make it like an actual part of the movie and like yeah. a, you know because they do it deal with it every day like Harley Quinn gets it you know what I'm saying like are you just, talking just... about the fantabulous emancipation of Harley Quinn what are you talking about what you didn't know that it's called so, birds of prey no 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 oh no the full title for that movie is the birds of prey or oh, the no. fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn oh. which I fucking love they turned it into a Rocky and Bullwinkle title. No, they turned it into Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance is what they turned it into. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize or, that was the full title. The no. Doctor Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying, I Love the Bomb. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But the, the fantabulous emancipation. No, I get it, Puddin. I get it. <laughs> Harley Quinn, which is, the whole movie is going to be like, fuck Jared Leto, I'm my own woman now. With my for. With my girl gang, too. You know, she's going to have like Huntress and Batgirl or whoever. Who wrote that? Who's directing it? Let me find out. I'm just, all I can think of right now, like I know I think she, she's producing. Because Birds of cool. Prey was a TV show. It was a TV too, show. But all I can think about right now is the Always Sunny Birds of War. It's them as wrestlers where they try to be eagles and then they realize Oh, I did see that. <laughs> and they're just the Birds of War and they have this like choreographed dance. Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous, oh, and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn directed by Kathy Yan, directed by a woman. Okay, okay. Who directed a movie called Dead Pigs. 
a bumbling pig farmer starring Zazie Beetz. All right. Oh, okay. Um, written by a woman, Christina Hodson. Oh, wow. Okay. Who wrote Shut In, which was a movie that I did not enjoy. Which is So there's a solid movie. chance that it, it's in the script. Not a solid chance it'll end up in the final cut. Right. No. Because yeah. the other thing is that because it is so taboo, the MPAA doesn't quite smile, smile very fondly on things like that. And so I think it would be very easy to get cut. But what's also kind of cool, just side note, while I'm just had this open... Christina Hodson, who was writing Birds of Prey, also wrote Bumblebee, which is coming out this year. Oh, which that also stars a female it's the, lead. It's Transformers. It looks really good, but though. it's starring Haley Seinfeld about the origins. So it's a it's a female led again. Female Transformers led. movies are good when the robots aren't on screen. When it's about the people, <laughs> they're surprisingly good movies. It's true. As soon as the robots come on screen, I don't give a shit. And she also is writing Batgirl, the screenplay. Okay. So this oh, woman, okay. who I'd never heard of until just now, good. is writing like several, uh, which is a clueless connection, right? Because Alicia Silverstone played, played Batgirl. Batgirl. Wow, and oh yeah, also it's cool. also good to hear because she replaced Yo Sweden on Batgirl because he was good. previously writing it. So. Get in right out there. Why do you pronounce his name like that? Yos, because it deserves to be pronounced that way. But you know, I mean, we talked about it a lot about how every movie eventually, every actor is going to be a superhero. But this is Batgirl and Ant Man. That's right. Yeah. In love. Wow. Very cool. But what I do like, and again, this is maybe it's a step in the right direction. But to what extent, what level the step is, I don't know. But we're just looking up Christina Hodson. There are more female-led projects, superhero, yeah. superheroes, especially you now because we have mm. more more than there were. We have Captain Marvel, which is going to be incredible. I hope in February we have we'll now a second Wonder Woman movie. We are going to have the Black Widow movie. Mm-hmm. We have the Wasp gets title building in Ant Man and the Wasp. Ooh, isn't that Evangeline Lilly? Yeah, Kate. it is. She's great. As I love her as Wasp. I love her as Wasp. I don't love that movie. But anyway, back movie to Movie's so bizarre. Okay, so Clueless. What are the broad topics that we've not touched on yet? Christian? We talk about? We'll get there. Uh, <laughs> first, something that we talked about in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, this kind of baby capitalist thing where these kids, they're children, but they're behaving like adults mm-hmm. and they have these jobs so they can buy cars and clothes and whatever and that's very much a big theme in this movie as well because if you pay attention to the characters in the background they're all like wheeling and dealing on their cell phones Mm -hmm. they're like making deals and stuff in the background Persian Mafia yeah that's right and I mean even at one point when Ty is like wow you guys talk like adults and then she's like well this is a really good school it's a really good school but I feel like that is another sort of nod to the idea that like they're acting older than they should be behaving and I think that's for every high school kid yeah, for sure. Yeah. And especially we see this in Dion and Murray's relationship where they <laughs> have this big melodramatic thing like they're that married. they're always constantly yeah. back and forth. Yeah, exactly. How what am I going to tell my grandchildren? <laughs> it's like, dude, you guys are in high school. <laughs> yeah. The line you just said that you guys talk like adults is used so perfectly in the trailer, which I put in the Cage Club monthly newsletter that I sent out today, the video at the bottom. The trailer for this movie, the first half is an extended version of the Haitians speech mm-hmm. in class, which got cut from the movie. But then that ends and it's just her in her share way just like saying things that sound important but don't have any kind of meaning or whatever and then it cuts right to that line you guys talk like adults and it's just so perfectly like dropped in there I love it too because we see her later when she's sort of training Ty that like she makes a conscious effort of trying to sound older and then she and like she doesn't date high school boys and like she's just over that when the movie begins she's already like left high school behind and it's like chair like you gotta she isn't stopping to smell the roses I feel yeah I feel like she's missing out on so much that's like the one thing about the movie that I don't love that Cher doesn't that Cher so patently rejects dating people 
people her own age because I'll tell you that messed a lot of us up when I was in high school which like yeah most boys in high school are undateable but I don't know I like had an attitude about it too and I think it's Sherrod's fault I never had a steady girlfriend in high school but I was in no condition to hold one either <laughs> like I will tell you you're too busy being rude to waitresses and then like, you know <laughs> and, leaving them a big tip to make up for them and fight. then starting about yeah you heard that diner episode mm-hmm. like, but... I know so much about your backstory just from like <laughs> conversations you don't even remember you had with Kyle and Brian on recorded tape but I feel like that is the thing like in high school like dating outside your age can be okay but you're missing out and like just feel like at that stage you should be with people your own age because such little age difference when you're a teenager is is so massive like from college to high school even junior high to high school like an eighth grader would not be dating a freshman and I didn't appreciate that at the time I was like I am mature for my age and like whatever and Mm. now I'm like oh my god I can't (laughs) believe that I dated people that were that much older than me that's crazy but wouldn't you say that searching for a boy in high school is as useless as searching for meaning in a Pauly Shore movie no because Pauly Shore movies (laughs) are great and let me tell you a story about that line firm disagree okay oh come on some of them are great I've only seen one if it's Encino Man and you don't think it's great then we have issues yeah we do it is Encino Man and it's it has a lot of problems but it is you need to see a biodome Biodome a jury duty uh, in the army now and then Uh, you can retalk guess what I won't be watching dude (laughs) I missed the boat on these by 20 years Biodome it was rumored was the lost Bill and Ted 3 script I just think my Biodome is Brigsby Bear Oh, instead of watching Pauly Shore movies, I was watching like Leslie Nielsen movies. So, oh, like, I saw I those was, too. Oh, also, yeah. did you know yeah. that it's possible to also watch those? <laughs> the line. What, uh, so I have Shore. this in all caps in my notes. This is from the book. That line about Pauly Shore movies was originally, wait for it, supposed to be about guess whose movies that was originally supposed to be about. Back I'm going to guess Keanu Reeves. No. No, wait, who could it be back then? About searching for meaning in just, a I, Tom you, Cruise movie? I no. don't know. Are like, you excited because it's someone that was that's close to the network's heart? Or is it... Has worked with Heckerling in the past. Sean Penn? No. <laughs> Look at us, both of us. Chevy Chase. Yes. Yeah, that's a dig on him for vacation. Yeah. But Sherry Lansing, who is, I think, one of the executive producers, maybe, she, ma- she made them change it because she would, like, run into Chevy Chase at, like, charity parties oh. and stuff. She didn't want to have to deal with it. No, But, but that also, was literally the only note that I she had don't for the entire her. movie. I don't blame her, though, because, like, if I had an opportunity to not get yelled at by Chevy Chase... Yeah. I'd I take it. Really? Too. I don't know. I kind of would oh, no, sit he's, there... He's an asshole. Oh, no, I know. I mean, no, I know. Have you seen The Roast? His roast? No, thank you. The Comedy Central roast? I don't like those. I find very upset. It is even more uncomfortable than an average one because he doesn't know any of the young comedians roasting him and they've like never met him. And it's basically just shit on Chevy for an hour and a half and he gets up at the end and like cries and is like, I don't know any of these people. This was the worst night of my life and like walks off stage. And you almost... Almost, almost feel, feel bad, bad for him. Well, maybe Chase. he didn't have a lifetime lived of like, of, like shitting on people. <laughs> yeah, shit. Yeah, I do want to point out, like I was saying before, about when we were talking about the trailer and about how Cher says these things that sound important but don't actually have meaning. I do genuinely love her quote: "Until mankind is peaceful enough not to have violence on the news, there's no point in taking it out of shows that need it for entertainment value." Which is a very she... distilled version of that, but it's also like. <laughs> Yeah, she, like, you know. She has a lot of very insightful comments that come like across as shallow. Like that it does not shallow. say RSVP yes, on the Statue of Liberty. Like, it's true. But, like, that that needs to be <laughs> skywritten every day now yeah. in 2018, yeah. which is baffling. That should just be common knowledge, and people are like, well, people should have to RSVP. I love that about this movie. It kind of tricks you because you feel like you're watching someone who is shallow and, and like, out of her depth and stuff. But, like, really, she kind of isn't. Like, she's halfway there. 
I like to think, and I'm not the first person to have said this, but I love to think of Legally Blonde as kind of a spiritual sequel to this. So like Elle Woods doesn't quite have the agency and the, at the beginning of Legally Blonde, she doesn't really have those qualities that Cher has, but she like eventually develops them. And like at that like final form of Elle Woods is, I feel like, Cher in law school. Where she can like yell habeas corpus at someone and vaguely know what it means. <laughs> no, she would know well, what it means. She knew it though. at that point. Yeah. yeah. Can I have a question for you? As someone who watched this at an impressionable age when you were in high school or before, did you ever call anybody a full-on Monet? No. And this is my one point of extreme disagreement with Cher in the film. Monet is the first painter that I studied as a painting student, so he holds a very special place in my heart. And she thinks that from far away, his paintings look fine, but up close, they're a big old mess. And I disagree with her. Very deeply. Because this is kind of the intersection of like all things you love in this one line, in Mm -hmm. this one movie. And it's. it's, I take that back. I definitely have called people full on Monet's, but like as a joke, like in conversation, as a shorthand for exactly what she means by that. It's And it's a smarter sort of put down, too, than just calling her like a butterface. She actually has a really quite impressive knowledge of art history in this movie. She mentioned. Her dad's art garden that they tour. I'm like, I don't remember this scene. Like, holy shit. then also when she's taking pictures of Ty. And I love that oh, yeah, she demonstrates an interest in photography yeah. in this. I really appreciate it. As she's taking pictures of Ty, she mispronounces the name of Botticelli and calls her Bonnie Celli chick. But she knows <laughs> who Botticelli is, which I think is great. I think talking about the garden is a good time to talk about Christian. Mm-hmm. And wait, I just want to show you, have you seen his IMDb picture? Oh, that's wonderful. I've only seen him in one other movie, and it was this Halloween when I put on a thing called Bolt Neck, starring Ryan Reynolds and one of the Lawrence brothers, and he's like third build in yeah. it, and he's in fucking credible really? in that this movie. Is, this he... is his first movie, and I've never heard of anything else he's ever been in. Yeah, he was in the book, kind oh. of talking about how he had a hard time getting cast and stuff after He's this. great. That's too bad. That's yeah. way too bad. Bolt Neck sounds yeah. exactly my shit, because, well, not really, Matthew Lawrence is the star. Yeah, he's but good. But also, another one of my childhood crushes, Al from Step by Step. Judd Reinhold's in is it. Is that the brunette or the blonde? The blonde. Shelly Duvall. Shelly Duvall's in it. Yeah, it's crazy. She was, I think she was like the tomboyish one, maybe? Yeah, no, I know. I had a crush on the brown-haired one. That's what um, I was asking. I wasn't so sure who's who. Was, I don't know. It's don't revealed know. that Christian's gay and, and yeah. Cher doesn't see it. So like, He's a cake boy is what he's first referred to. There is, is one... That a thing or is that a clueless thing? I think it's a clueless thing. I, when we I were recorded to make for that like a Whistle slur. Thinking, I, I did a pretty deep Googling on it because I wasn't sure if it was a derogatory term or not. feels like they it made one up like so it. they didn't yeah. need to use a real one. Yeah, which I appreciate because then like the string of things that Murray says are things that gay men would use to identify each other and not so much an external thing. So like a Streisand ticket holding friend of Dorothy is one of them. There's one clue that I picked up this time just because you know Christian's gay while you're watching. He's reading a William S. Burroughs book Mm -hmm. at one point and I was like, oh, now that's, I mean, if it's not Naked Lunch, it's setting off flares, but that chair doesn't catch it because she's just like, that's something I feel like she would have caught, but she's so like dreamy-eyed for him in a way. You because, think Cher knows who Burroughs is? Well, I think, well, she knows certain, like, artists and photographers. Like, I'm surprised she didn't know who some of the, the actors in Spartacus and things. Like, yeah. I'm surprised that like, she didn't pick up some of the Spartacus. The joke is all the references and stuff that he's into are the giveaways and things like that. But they're also, I thought part of the joke was she's so blinded by his, how gorgeous he is. By that, a boy who's wearing pants that fit. 
that she like drops that, her guard those, and doesn't pick up on all the cues yeah. and things. Yeah. Every piece that he wears in this movie is vintage nineteen, like authentic nineteen forties, nineteen fifties. The ring a ding kit clothing, yeah, that they got <laughs> from a costume house. But those pants that he wears when he first shows up in class come up to like his rib cage. Yeah, oh, they're, they're from crazy. the movie Her. And they they're look, like future her pants. They look great. <laughs> they do. He looks amazing. Yeah. Oh, the Rat Pack called. Sammy Davis died. They had an opening. And then he gets into the car. Do you love Billy Holiday? I love, I love him. him. Yeah, it's so good. All right. The thing that's really remarkable about Christian in this movie is that other than that scene in the car where she's talking to Murray about it, like they just don't make a big deal about it yeah. at all. He's gay, and it's fine, and that's just a fact of his life and who he is. And there's even a part where they're at the Boston's party, the college party, and she's like, oh, look, like, he's, he's rejecting all the he's girls. He's looking at any other girl yeah, here. Yeah. And come to find out why. Well, but in that, getting on the weight of the bartender. Yeah. I thought the first time, like, he was just ordering a drink or something. And having a good and conversation. Having a laugh with the Friendly guy. Friendly guy. Right, but, oh, but then. They're both very much leaning into Oh, yes. Other. No, well, then you come. Legs it's one of those things. Legs crossed towards each other. That's an unequivocal sex invite. Which, by the way, it is not. That's not. That's not it. Wait, what does that? What does that mean? Like, if if your like, legs, like this? No, no, if like, your legs are towards each other, like this. Or... If like I'm facing you with my oh, legs crossed, okay. I might just be having manners, right? But do you think? So he went to that Boston's party. I guess. Do you think he like hooked up with the Boston's? Well, he was going to hang out with them. Remember, right. it was like he was going to an after hours, hours party. At- I love this shot of him. He's the only one dancing yeah. left on the dance floor. I know. And there's like, like a guy sure. passed out. I think the guy passed out might actually be one of the Bostones who actually passed out. You know what always after being so was drunk. weird to me is that the Bostones have a band member that only dances. He's a Boston. Yeah, but that's like they toured with him and everything. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, is okay. Boston an actual thing or do they make it up? Yeah, it's a thing. What, is it, what does it mean? I don't know. A guy that dances on stage. Yeah. No, I don't know for Basically. sure. But I mean, because I remember like when I saw the Bostones, like he was there. He it's was like, dancing. is he going to pick up an instrument at some point? Nope. Um, never did. Also at that party, Cher's like, look at Josh. Like he finds the only other adult here and that's the only person that he talks to. That guy was a member of the lighting crew. Oh, nice. The just pulled in and was like, can you just like stand here and talk to him? So how old is Josh? 19? He's maybe 19 or 20. Okay. Is, he a, yeah. he's a, is he in college? Or is he he's in college. He's in College. He, wants, yeah. to he wants to be a lawyer. I only ask because Cher turned 16. We yeah. don't see her sweet. It's a little Actually, weird. Actually, yeah, he's a, a freshman sweet. in college because Dion says, like, freshman psych. Or, no, uh, Cher says freshman psych. Rears its ugly head. They start the movie, they're 15, and they end it, they're 16, right? It's a little Wait, weird really? that we don't get a sweet 16. I was thinking, right? I, it never occurred to me until I watched it last night, and I was like, she had her driving test. Yeah. I guess she had a birthday that we Like, didn't it must see? have been epic. Yeah. Right? Like, one of those MTV, my super sweet 16 type I don't know. deals. But... I failed my first driver's test, too. Did you? I did. I aced it by driving portion, especially when I parallel parked. The lady turned to me and, like, said that was a very good job parallel parking so here's here's a little bit of a story so i nailed the parallel parking i had i think i just had the grumpy guy on the wrong uh, okay i didn't go around a car to make a right because the car is trying to make a left he's like go well, he just like there are a couple little things that he just like nitpicked yeah but well, you just have like, like a right away took it that snowed they cleared the road and where he hadn't go around the guy was still covered in snow like it wasn't a fish thick it was part of the shoulder or whatever he failed me like i probably in reality wasn't ready to drive at that point like i had to wait like six weeks or whatever but like he like failed me for things that like i shouldn't have been failed 
nailed for. But I nailed the parallel parking both times. And like to the, to the point where like the second time where I passed, I was like, did I feel anything? He's like, no. I'm like, oh. Like it was just like a nice guy, like a pleasant guy on the right uh-huh. morning. It's just like kind of like her driver instructor mm-hmm. who like did the first second she hits, I would have been like, stop the car, stop the car, stop the car. She gets like multiple tries. Apparently that guy in the book said that everywhere he goes, people are like, say the line. And he's like a big theater actor, I guess. But that's the thing that people are like, the messiah of the DMV. I say live that up, man. Like go to conventions, you know, show up at DMVs, like do whatever you got to do. Just show up at the DMV. Sign autographs. Kara, I know you know this, but Mike, did you look up or did you know who else auditioned or was considered for the parts in this movie? No, no, I don't know any of that. So for the role of Cher, Alicia Witt, who I love, who I don't think would fit Who do I know her from? She's a redhead. She's been in a lot of things. She's a very cute redhead. She's in... Justified, I know her from Justified. She was in, I think, maybe... I don't like it. I never watched Everyone's so mean to each other. It's, you know, it's the South. Reese Witherspoon, Carrie Russell, we talked about her before, too. And Tiffany Thiessen, for Cher. Tiffany Amber Thiessen. Yeah. Angelina Jolie and Gwyneth Paltrow were both considered, but neither auditioned. Gwyneth Paltrow ended up playing Emma. I don't know in what point of their career this would have been. I don't know. Very early. Ben Affleck and Zach Braff were both auditioned for Josh. Seth Green auditioned for Travis. Alana Ubach? Oh, I love her. Who is she? She's a sassy redhead, too. She's great. She's on this divorced mom show that I really enjoy. Like a scripted divorced mom show? Yeah, actually a a show created by Marty Noxon, who co-wrote... Co-produced. She, unreal. She did a bunch of stuff. Buffy. Yeah. Buffy too, yeah. Her Twitter bio is like the one who ruined Buffy because she's the one who took <laughs> it over from Joss Whedon for the last few seasons and people are like, those are the worst, but I like them the most. Yeah, that's I mean the same thing with like The Sopranos. Like, people are like, the end of The Sopranos is bad. I'm like, no, I kind of like that the best because it gets real weird. Mm-hmm. She, Alana Ubach auditioned for Ty. Terrence Howard auditioned oh, for Murray. really young Terrence Howard. Which when we did Fighting for Magic Mike's, I asked Joe, and I still don't have an answer, is Terrence Howard a good actor? I thought he Dave was. Dave Chappelle. The what was he role. doing instead? Robin Hood Men in Tights, probably. Jamie Walters, I don't know who that is, auditioned for Christian. Sarah Michelle Geller was offered the role of Amber, but had to turn it down when her soap opera All My Children refused to allow her any time away. Jerry Orbach was offered the role of Mel Horowitz. Oh my goodness. But similarly could not get time away from Law and Order. Whoa. Uh, and Harvey Keitel was deemed too expensive to be part of the cast. What I do love about Dan Hedaya when she first brings Ty over and she's like, uh-huh. Daddy, meet my new friend Ty in the first Get out of my chair. Get out of my chair. Just aggressively. I love that scene towards the end of the movie after Cher realizes that she likes Josh and she's like pacing around outside her dad's office in her pajamas. Then they have this really like tender moment where she's like, I like this boy and he doesn't like me back. He's like, well, how could that be? (laughs) You're the most beautiful girl there is. And it's just such a sweet moment that they have together. It makes me cry every time I see it. He has a way to argue it. He has a really nice, subtle moment with Josh too when Cher goes to the party with Christian Uh and and he's like, I should go to the party. Should I go to the party? I should go. I'm going to go to the party. I'm going to look after. And he's like, if you feel you should go, you should go. And as Josh gets up to leave, he just gives him a look like, you like her. Yeah. <laughs> and the only other thing in terms of casting, what I liked about, my favorite thing about the IMDb trivia for this movie is that that entire list of casting was one bullet point. Just like, all right, here's everything you need to know and this is all. And like, it's because in other movies we've done, it's just like duplicate, duplicate, single line. The only other thing that was separate that was similar was that Paul Rudd auditioned for the roles of Murray, Christian, and Elton. Wow. And he assumed that the character of Murray was a white teenager trying to act like a rapper. Mm-hmm. Carrie, I'm sure you have a million more notes. I actually didn't take that much notes have, this you, time. You, I mean, you've already talked about this movie for an hour or more with Jordan, yeah. with your BFF. Do you have anything else you want to say about either within the scope of Amy Hackerling's career or about the movie in general? I mean, yeah, I have so much sure. to say. It's just a matter of organizing my thoughts. Did we talk about hats yet? Oh my God, no, we did I not. Knew, <laughs> I knew there was something we forgot. Yeah, yeah, something big. Okay. Literally big. 
Yeah. I mean, that hat that Dion wears in the first, like, beginning part of the movie, designed specifically for this movie, made from scratch, handmade by this, like, fancy New York hat designer who does hats for the royal family and all their weird hats. Yeah, because they have to wear weird hats at weddings Yeah, all the time. It's one that kind of looks like a tiered cake, right? Like it's Yeah, like like a cake or a centerpiece. Smaller circle. Yeah. Or also kind of like a hat box. Right. Or or it almost looks like a giant, like a top hat. All of these things are, like, influenced the look of it. That whole look for Dion was designed designed by Mona May, whereas Cher's yellow outfit was Jean-Paul Gaultier designer thing, but Mona May designed Dion's look from the ground up, which I think is amazing. They, they look like equals, you know what I'm saying? Like, they it look like looks equals, like the but same... they're, very, they're distinctly different. They have two very different styles that like really fit their like, characters. Yeah, like not the same designer, but like the same store or something mm-hmm. would carry it to, to find out that they're such drastically different creators... It's crazy. Yeah. Because it looks just as much as expensive and as actualized as the yeah. as the uh, real it's, one. It's amazing. And Dion actually gets to wear the most hats, I think, in the whole movie. She gets a lot of really fun, funky hats. There's like another kind of weird Mad Hatter hat that she wears in the scene where they leave the note for Miss Geist. It's like this like red, orange top hat thing with these like yellow and black swirls on oh, them. Oh, yes. I remember that. Mm-hmm. So this movie greatly contributed to the weird trend of oversized top hats and cat in the hat hats that happened oh, in the 90s. I don't I know if you guys remember those. I remember the cat in the hat hats at my school. Yeah, mm-hmm. I had one. I had them, but I never wore them in public. We were not allowed to wear hats in school, and it always really oh. disappointed me because I, I love a good hat. There's actually a cat in the hat hat in the Christmas party scene. The yeah, guy okay. that Amber is dancing with, who is actually the guy who plays Murray's friend, the guy who's shaving his head, oh. that's him. It's the same oh. actor. Playing two different. Parts. Oh, cool! Yeah. Now, is that an actual Christmas party, or are they just being ironic and have no, Christmas, Christmas decorations? Party. Okay, I wasn't yeah. sure because I didn't see any other Christmas. So it's a Christmas stuff. movie. There you go. The costumes actually, on the two girls especially, actually follow seasonal coloring. So, oh, like, nice. you have the the spring. red and yellow in the fall, and then around Christmas time, everyone's wearing like jewel tones and these dark reds. That's the scene where Cher has the gorgeous Alaya dress with the jacket. Mona May designed that jacket. With the, the feathers? Dress? No, that's the the red dress with the red jacket with the black feather okay. lining. Because she's also got the white jacket with the or the white dress with the white jacket too. That looks the that's, Calvin Klein. That looks like underwear. That's yeah. just like a white sheet. That's later in the movie. That's Which when she also, goes out with Christian. I want to point out that like twenty three years after the fact does not look very like it's if somebody looks like that right now I'd be like oh yeah that's like an- Calvin Klein like relaunched that dress a couple years ago huh? and they were like here's the dress from Clueless but like, buy it. it. Like, I'm sure like it was you know racy back then but now. It's just like, oh, it's yeah. you know, when there's a new Nicki Minaj video where there's just like, or the Miley video that we watched today where Miley just like, just does a full on moonshot. Like, it's just like, this is part of our culture now. And yeah. To have that not necessarily conservative dress, but not particularly suggestive dress. And her dad's like, no. Nope. Or Paul Rudd first is just like, you're going to let her wear that? Like that? Like, <laughs> yeah. I just love that he tells her to put something over it and she puts a on a sheer, sheer shirt. Yeah. So that's really funny. So yeah, they follow these seasonal colors and I hadn't really tracked that previously nice. in previous watches. So it was interesting. That's great, see. just subconsciously, yeah. like, feeling it. The but passage also, of time. Even goes just together with everything that she was saying and, like, Bill Pope was talking about and everything, just that the characters and the wardrobe mm-hmm. should 
be you know match the character yeah which yeah. is something that drives me like crazy trying to find the character more work. one thing i noticed about hats did you guys realize how many people were wearing berets, berets? in the yeah. back what the hell was That's that mona may in european vacation there's the beret joke yeah so i was i thought maybe she was just taking the piss out of that movie because she couldn't make the Chevy Chase no, joke No, Mona Way is European herself. So she loved so, the beret. And yeah, she, she okay. pulled a lot of European influences for the All film. Right. And like production design in general, Amy Heckerling wanted this sense of these like weird neoclassical things in California that look like they're old, but actually they're brand new. You know why that makes sense? It's because it kind of goes along with this idea I have in my head anyway, that the super rich people in Beverly mm-hmm. Hills is like, I just feel like there is like an old old sort of sense to your style that rich kids would wear stuff that was more popular. I mean, this isn't true or anything, but just like we're trying to depict kids in Beverly Hills that are in a status above most of the people watching this movie. So we need to sort of convey this like otherworldliness to their status and stuff. So what better way than taking like old European fashion and applying it to modern Beverly Hills? Like there just seems like that makes sense yeah. to me. But also that when they were researching the, the film, they found all of these like extremely rich people who were buying new antiques. Like they were like not actually antiques. They were things that were made to look like antiques. And so the house, which they spent months scouting location for, the facade of it has these like big neoclassical columns. When she goes shopping on Rodeo Drive, like the whole like stone yeah, mountain that, like, stuff. There's that one house she walks home. Oh, the witch house. The witch house. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's incredible. Yeah. That's a Beverly Hills. Icon. The scene where she is doing that like shame spiral walk right before she realizes, oh my God, I love Josh. (laughs) They were shooting that like at golden hour in like one of the busiest sections of Beverly Hills and they kept hearing people getting car accidents because they were like, hey, what's going on over there? Oh, man. And because like the light was weird and people were distracted, they were like, we have to get out of here before someone dies. Boy, getting off the freeway makes you realize how important love is. Oh, I love that part right there. Baby, you're getting on the freeway. <laughs> Another Heckerling movie with bad driving and car accidents. This is. That's oh, been a vacation. theme. Well, no, it's been a theme Well, like almost from... all, every movie. The car crash in... Fast, Fast times, times where they crash Forrest Whitaker's car All and the then Johnny Dangerously changes. at the end there's a car chase where they're pulling the paper off of the car in different colors yeah. and then the European vacation gets in a couple accidents Heckerling grew up in the Bronx I think and so she never learned to drive until she moved to California and just found it so horrifying that that's why these things wind up in her movies and what happens to Dion in that scene where they she accidentally gets on the freeway she said like that happened to her multiple times I do want to point out that the last movie that she did Look Who's Talking Two was in 1990. This is 1995. Mm-hmm. And the next movie she's going to do, Loser, is in 2000. A 10-year span where she only has one movie that comes I don't, out. God, like I can't that. believe that's the next one because it's not good. We're all downhill from here because yeah. it was it was started and then it sort of <laughs> well, like... Well, Paul Rudd will be back at some point. I mean, Alicia Silverstone will be back at some point too. So we have certain things to I do like that she to. is back now as an actress after taking a while away that she's back now in a handful of things including The Killing of Sacred Deer. Oh, oh really? Yeah. I not She yeah. plays uh, the creepy kid's 
Ned's mom, who is in, who he just wants to set up with Colin Farrell. Oh, back to the shame spiral scene. That cover of All By Myself, that's Jewel singing. That's Good soundtrack to this. Excellent. That song, Kids in America, that's a cover version as mm-hmm. well, but that was a that was a huge Wait, song. Wait, wasn't that the Muffs? Or the or Muffs? Was it? I think it was the, I mean. Oh, was the original version? I think that's the original. Oh, no, it's a cover. It sounds is like it? a, it sounds Heckerling wanted to poppier. use the original version as the opening of Fast Times at Ridgemont right, High and yeah. went with a different song instead. Wait, is the Muffs the original or are they, are they a cover? Because that song is in Rock Band 2 or 3, and it sounds to me like the original version, but maybe it's a cover. But maybe the version I know is a cover. You know what I mean? After like a year and a half, they did only Masters. Okay, the version that... in the movie is The Muffs. So that's the song. The that's original the was by Kim Wilde. Okay, okay, so that's the version that I know. That was maybe it's the popular popular one, but it's also perfect for yeah. that scene. Mm-hmm. This song, Supermodel, which plays during the Thai makeover scene, written for this movie. Really? Mm-hmm. Ah, I remember hearing that song everywhere. Yeah, I so, did not realize that. I always just thought it sounded a little like Brittany Murphy singing that song. Mm-hmm. She has very cool silver Doc Martens that she wears in the Boston's party scene, oh, and Amy Heckerling still has them. I like when she and she meets uh, Breckenmeyer on the lunch line, and he's just like, "I still gonna do it on Marvin the Martian," and she just happens Get to get out of town. I do Marvin the, Martian. Marvin the Martian. Marvin's the Martian. So I wonder if Breckenmeyer's character saw that, like so mm-hmm. obviously, and was just you know, he's that smooth. Is he that smooth? You know, for a burnout. Lunch, though I think she's eating a piece of apple pie. Oh, I've never even looked at it. Milk and, and a, Diet Coke. a can of Diet Coke. Yeah, it's just disgusting. I'm looking at through the soundtrack, and I got to Mentos Jingle Fresh goes. <laughs> better. Oh, I nice. in the couch scene. Long time. Oh, like, I she's know all the words. so cute in that scene. She's just so, like, she's proud of herself, but not, like, showing off. She's just like, I love this. This, she's is, happy. this is who I am. She's so happy to be, like, the new kid with new friends and fitting in and the whole image change and stuff. And it's actually working at that point, you know? Like, it seems like, okay. Like, there can't be too much harm. There's in this. an interesting story about Coolio and that's <laughs> yeah. that's in the books, but I don't remember what exactly it was. Uh, I think he had like taken that that hook from another song that he had done and his... like repurposed it. Oh, oh, he sampled himself yeah, for that I think old song. So. <laughs> nice. I don't remember if that's exactly what it was. But I don't it was remember that, that being an actual song. Like I thought that that was like. Yeah, what? it was created for the movie. So it was okay. Yeah, yeah all right. Because well, I don't remember that being terrible. a real Coolio song. So the premiere of the movie, they worked with MTV to like do this big MTV beach house oh, no. thing in Malibu. <laughs> that never goes right. It's like not dark enough and the ocean is loud. And so it was like not exactly a great setting to watch a film, but apparently it was a really fun party. Coolio said that he got, quote, white boy wasted at it. So cool, cool, that cool. sounds fun. Or should I say Coolio? Slightly less fun. Amy Heckerling was dating Bronson Pinchot. Valky. Also, um, true romance. True. Yep. So the high school in Clueless is actually partially named after Bronson Pinchot because it's Bronson Alcott High School. So Bronson Alcott, a real guy, he is the father of Louisa May Alcott, who wrote Little Women. He was this like transcendentalist thinker who started this extremely unsuccessful alternative school. Oh. So Bronson Pinchot, they go to the Clueless premiere and they're on the red carpet and everyone, like all the photographers are like, Bronson over here, blah, blah, blah. Then somebody, like one of the producers was like, uh, that's the director. Like, cause they were like, oh, can you get out of the shot? And then somebody told them like, hey, that's the director. And then they were like, oh, Bronson, can you get out of the shot? And like Amy over here. And he was so butthurt about it that she had to like manage his 
feelings his about it ego, for months afterwards. For months, months afterwards? Not just for like through the night? No, no, like no. he woke up the next day and was like, you know when they told me to get out of the way so they could take a picture of you? That really hurt my feelings. Like, oh my God, yeah. Why would you break up with a guy like that? Immediately? Yeah. But unfortunately, we all make poor decisions. I just wanted to point that out because that's the thing that women frequently have to do is manage other people's emotions on a day that's like supposed to be for them. Well, like you constantly heard during the election, like, oh, we can't have a woman. They're too emotional. Like, excuse me? And then, but this Bronson Pinchel story is the same thing. It's like it, Amy Heckerling didn't go off on a tiff because a man was standing in front of her getting his picture taken. It was the man who had to step at aside. At her movie at premiere. At her movie, no less. And then she has to like coddle her boyfriend. Yeah. I know that she and her family at least toured Europe with him after that. I don't know at what point they broke up. Things don't go well when you have a European vacation. Right. Maybe he'll pick it, pick (laughs) the hint up. This is my way out of the relationship. What a guy. I mean, I love him in True Romance. Uh, My parents loved, I remember very, very, when I was very, very young, like when I was like two and three, when Perfect Strangers. Perfect Strangers is a great show. My parents loved that show. He's on the chilling adventures of Sabrina as Sabrina's shitty principal. Mike, do you have any notes about Clueless? Uh, party fun, leisure colorful was one of my main notes. <laughs> like, uh, this Wait, movie I, I, just, can you explain that a little bit? I, just from the beginning, it felt like this movie was going to be a party okay. and a lot of fun and uh-huh. leisure, uh, leisure to watch and very colorful. Party, party fun, leisure colorful? Yep. Oh, I love Dan Hedaya's line where he says, we divorce wives, not children. <laughs> I don't know if that's necessarily true in the real world, but it's a great line in this movie. And it works uh, in for that their family. scene, and I pointed this out to Joey, <laughs> that she had just explained that her dad is like this super scary litigator and even their maid is terrified of him and then like they're in the kitchen and he like walks over towards the door and you see her like hiding from him the maid right yeah just yeah, in yeah. the background <laughs> yeah. and I just I realized that like uh, two watches ago that I hadn't seen that before there's a moment when Cher brings her revised grades to her father that she argued which I love that thing and she walks into his room puts down the tray of tea I think and goes over to the window and plucks a lemon from a lemon tree out of the open window and just starts cu- I'd never noticed it before I just love the convenience of that and yeah. the wealth that that displays of, and like, the California and the California like, I'm just going to go pluck an orange from a tree for lunch on my walk to work or whatever yeah. kind of thing. Like, I've always wanted to be able to just, like, reach my arm out of a window and come back That was fruit. such a wonderful little touch. Oh, and then um, Donald Faison's wearing a Superman necklace. Oh. I never caught that before either. <laughs> and I just, every time Superman comes up because of the cage in action, I have sure, to mention sure. Superman somehow. So I thought that was cool. Plus, I thought, you know, maybe in an alternate universe, he would have probably been a like a fun Superman uh, Donald Faison is like oh yeah I could have seen him as a great so Clark good. and then like like just this super happy Listen, like it, Superman as we mentioned he hasn't aged it's not too late it's not too late you well, know we got rid of Henry Cavill well, he's... not the rumors Michael B. Jordan maybe oh Kara, any other notes? One thing related to Donald Faison that I noticed in the last couple watches is during the wedding scene, like it, it shows the audience for the wedding and Dion is like weeping and he's just sitting there like looking so bored holding a tissue at her and it just it made me laugh so hard there is one more detail at the wedding scene when she's like you know it's supposed to be a fake out you think it's Cher getting married and she's like as if but when they show the reverse shot of them at the altar the groom has like a full head of hair but then they cut to Wallace Shaw and he's got like no hair so I've never noticed that so it's like a fake fake out like they totally wanted you to think it was their wedding but then when they cut to the actual wedding it's like nope it that was all like a setup. Well, I think I mentioned this before we started recording this episode that 
Amy Heckerling is the bridesmaid who instigates the pushing, shoving, and falling down during the bouquet scene. And I like rewound it like five times just so I could see her. And now I can see her in it. She had that whole, uh, the whole wedding sequence cut so precisely that you don't really see her in the whole thing. Well, that was Clueless. Next episode, we will be talking about Loser. More Clueless? More Clueless. Clueless. This is just going to be the Clueless cast from now on. Yeah. We get together once every other week, talk about Clueless. Pod Clue? Well, we could just, every time, watch the movie with a different theme. Like I said, at one time, I could just point out all the good outfits. Another time, could be all the good flower arrangements in the background, because they have a lot of flowers in their house, which would be incredibly expensive. I know that there's a lot of crazy paintings in their house, too. Mm-hmm. Which are not just I the mean, one of her good, mom, it's but... It's a good investment. Well, so a lot of the stuff that they used to furnish the house just came from, like, Paramount Prop Studios and stuff, oh, just because cool. the budget was pretty small. But also, they had to build fake walls in that house because the rooms were so big that, like, it oh, just... Wow. It to much... shoot in there was, like, just too, you, how much, too much. How much money does this movie make? I don't know, but I can find out from the internet. Well, let me close up shop here while you look that up. So for all things Cinemakers, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cage. Club or at Cage Club Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Since we last recorded an episode, Mike and I began a Patreon page. That's right. So if you want to choose your own season of Cinemakers, you can go there. We also are going to do standalone special Cinemakers Patreon exclusive, or at least first run at seasons of the show. So go there. You can also get merch in, re- in return, shout outs on air. All sorts of fun stuff. Patreon.com slash Cage Club. You can also email us, cinemakers at cageclub.me. We've got another four episodes of this run of Amy Hackerling. All right, Kara, what you got? Budget was $12 million. Not only did it come in under budget, they were only over schedule by like four days. Wow. Which is great. remarkable. So Especially considering they made sunlight for the entire movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the thing that like everyone had to say about Amy Heckerling in the book, and I should have said this at the beginning of the episode, but that like her sets to work on are like extremely chill. Like if you walk down the set you wouldn't realize that like she's the director and she's the one calling the shots because she's not like She's not a tyrant. She's not yeah, like, bulky, bossing yelling people around people, and like... that everything is like really chill and not at all chaotic, which a lot of directors like spin up chaos on their sets like I think the example that they used in the book was Francis Ford Coppola who notoriously works in chaos but she sounds like a delight to work with but anyway they came in under budget and only over schedule by like four days worldwide gross was $20,700,000 which is not that much but there was a tremendous amount of merchandising tie-in with the movie so it's also before DVD Mm -hmm. movies really had a life on DVD a cult movie like everyone I know either had this on VHS or has it on DVD And, and I feel like you know people saw it and watched it between 1994 and 2004, yes. but I don't feel, I feel like after the new millennium, it really, like, the internet was like, Clueless is a classic, like, Clueless, Clueless, you know? Like, you better get to know Clueless, because, like, the internet's going to be referencing it for the rest of its life and stuff. I, like. Yeah, and I think it's, like, a huge disservice to this movie that people think of it as this, like, poppy, fluffy thing, because I think it absolutely deserves to be on, like, the AFI Top 100. That's a great point about films in general that I feel like they don't have to be on the top 100. Like, you don't have to be a serious drama just mm-hmm. to be an excellent movie. A great movie American and a great, film, a great, which Exactly. Is. Like, yeah. yeah, you could be a comedy or a horror movie. Or, you know, you don't have to be gone with the wind just to be a great film. You don't have to just, or to be an important movie. I mean, speaking of great costumes, 
But if you think about it, like, what could this movie do better to be the movie that it wants to be? And there's not much. Like, no, it is. Yeah. And Heckling said that this is the vision that she had in her head. This is the closest she ever got to, like, manifesting that in film form. It, it, it feels like it feels like a movie that is what it wanted to be. And again, like with Luke who's talking, I feel like she shines through. Her personality comes through in this. Her, her politics and just everything. Like, I, I know her. I feel like I know her better now as a person through her movies, which is great. That's like yeah. the last two movies have like done that. And that's incredible. I, I definitely feel like I've gotten to know her better as a person and as an artist. And it's been really fun. This was ranked as the, I think, number seven at some point, maybe around the time it was sometime since it came out, obviously, that was ranked the number seven, seventh best high school movie of all time. What do you think number one? Fast, fast Times? times. <laughs> It's crazy that she has this oh, and yeah. fast time. Well, Brian and I were just talking about that on his episode for Tammy and the T-Rex, which... Classic high school Oh film. my god, I hated it so much. Is that the Whoopi Goldberg movie, or is that... No, no, no. and I signed up for it thinking that okay. it was. Oh, just that, like, he was yeah. trying to think about who uh, would belong on, like, the high school director, Not Mount Rushmore. Rushmore, you know? And it's, like, John Hughes and Amy Hackerling, and there's... Almost no one else has made more than one really iconic high school Whoa. movie. Except for maybe the high school musical guy. Kenny Ortega. All three worth watching. Man, of course they are. They have Zac Efron in them. More importantly, Vanessa Hudgens. Well, not more importantly, but as important. Vanessa Hudgens and Ashley Tisdale, both great. When I was thinking about the fashion in this movie and like how much I loved clothes as a kid, I used to change my outfits like eight times a day as a little child because I just wanted to put on different outfits. I'm sure your mom loved that. She, at one point, she implemented a system where she gave me like poker chips and I would only have so many for the day and I would have to give <laughs> her a, one every time I changed my clothes. And also, I would have multiple Halloween costumes every year. Like I'd wear one to school and then I'd yeah. wear one trick-or-treating. I think I've had, I had two a few years where I did a school one and then an after yeah. school one. And I, I think clothes was very influential for me of sure. like what? my interest in clothes did and fashion. Did you see this around the time it came out? Yeah. I think I saw it not in the theater but when it came out on vhs i got it for christmas so one year like i would have been nine yeah. which as we've talked about previously as we've established on wistful thinking nine is a very impressionable age things that you see when you're nine years old just for like really form some neural pathways what did i see in 96 all those movies i watched before joey was even born <laughs> <laughs> i'm not that much younger but it's, 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 not, that, it's not that far but yeah wow very, very cool. Well, cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. This is the 51st episode of Cinemakers. So there's 50 other episodes covering Soderbergh, covering Christopher Dolan, covering other Amy Heckerling movies, as well as Fede Alvarez and the RKSS Collective, one-off episodes in between there. Go do those things. Patreon.com slash cageclub and email us, cinemakers at cageclub.me. We'll be back next Monday on New Year's Eve for Loser. Today is oh. Christmas Eve. <laughs> But, you know, we got one more episode of Cinemakers this year to come, so we will do that, and then we'll have another three kicking off in January to finish up this little run of Amy Hackerling, and then who knows where we'll go from there, but, yeah, you know. Future's wide open. Future ain't got nothing but time. You'll understand that eventually. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I am Cara Gale O'Regan. And we'll see you next time for Loser right here on Cinemakers. Goodbye, goodbye!